We turn now to the reading of God's Word. You can see in your bulletin that, as I hinted at earlier, we're turning now to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us ears now to hear your voice speaking by it. We say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Christ came into the world, he had something to say. That's part of our passage this morning. When Christ came into the world, he said, and then our passage goes on to say what he said. Let me start off this morning by addressing the younger children of our congregation. Children, I want to say this to you, take you back to a day that you do not remember When you came into the world, when you came into the world on the day that you were born, you had something to say. It was the very first thing that you ever said, and I know what it was. As a father, I have some experience with this. Children, what you said that day was the very first thing that you ever said. What you said that day was something like, Wah. 
That was the basic idea. It would have been higher pitched than that. It would have been much louder than that. There would have been a sense of urgency about it, but that was the basic idea. When you came into the world, you said, wham. Your mother also said some things that day. Your father did too. If you had older brothers and sisters, they may have had something to say about it as well. But today we're focusing on you. When you came into the world, you said, wah. And that was a very good thing for you to say. That wasn't whining or complaining. In fact, that was for you to say just what everybody wanted you to say. Because the fact that you said it meant life. It meant life. Because it meant that you had taken your first breath into those little lungs. And now you were doing something with that first breath and your little lungs and your little vocal cords. You came into the world and you said, wow. And it was great. It was actually, believe it or not, a beautiful sound. Now think about this, children. Stick with me here. Think now about Jesus. When Jesus came into the world on the day that he was born, he had something to say too. The Son of God, as a tiny baby, and would you believe, strange as it may seem for us to think about, that the very first thing that the Son of God said when he came into the world in the way that he did that day when he was born, the first thing he said was, Wah! Just like you. High-pitched, loud, urgent, helpless. He was just like you. You were just like him. And that's because the Son of God came into the world as a real human baby. And and he sounded like it. And it meant life. In his case, too. Just like you. Meant that he had real human life. But children, we're going to take one more step. So stick with me here. The fact that Jesus came into the world and and cried like that in those first moments as a tiny baby, that's not the whole story. Because remember, he wasn't just a tiny baby being born into the world from his mother. He was also the Son of God coming into the world from heaven, as mysterious as that is even to think about. And because that was true of him, Because he was also the son of God coming into the world from heaven. Well, we need to imagine a very different kind of speech. We need to imagine that the son of God came into the world from heaven with something to say to his father in heaven as the son of God. Imagine that. And that is what our Bible passage this morning is teaching us. When the son of God came into the world from heaven, he had something to say To God the Father in heaven. And I'll tell you right now what it is. What it was. When the Son of God came into the world, he said something like this. Father, I've come into the world to do your will. And Father, you've given me everything I need in order to do it. That's what it boils down to. 
Father, I've come into the world to do your will, and you've given me just what I need to do it. That's what the Son of God said when he came into the world. And we ought to be very grateful for that. Why? Because one more time we can say that meant life. But now, like capital L, life, eternal life. Because the Son of God came into the world to give us everlasting life. And so it's the best news of all that he came into the world saying what he said. Determined to do his Father's will. And to make full and faithful use of all that the Father had given him and provided for him. So now I say to all of us this morning, all of us who are here to worship, we're going to learn together about that from Hebrews 10. We're going to learn together about what Christ had to say when he came into the world. And if we're going to appreciate what it is that he had to say, we need to back up a bit. And our passage does that for us. It takes us back to the way things were before he came into the world. It's all here in Hebrews 10. So think about these two points or these two headings that we're about to explore. The first is the sacrifices offered prior to Christ. Because that's where our writer begins. The sacrifices offered prior to Christ. That's verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, the sacrifice offered by Christ. Verses 5 through 10. So the sacrifices offered prior to Christ, verses 1 through 4, and then the sacrifice that he offered, the sacrifice of himself, verses 5 through 10. So let's start with what the writer has to say here about the sacrifices that were offered before Jesus came into the world. Look again at verse 1. The whole system of sacrifices that God set up for the people of Israel in the Old Testament Verse 1, he says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here is our writer reflecting upon the whole system of sacrifices that God set up for his people in the Old Testament. And in particular, what he seems to have in mind, he doesn't make this clear, but he seems to have in mind the annual sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Because notice, twice in our passage, he uses the language, Every year. So it seems to be the case that what he's got in mind is the annual cycle of making atonement on the day of atonement by the sacrifices of that day. And by the way, you can read all about that in Leviticus chapter 16. There was this elaborate ritual that the high priest was supposed to carry out once a year. Every year it involved a bull and goats. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. And what our writer of Hebrews in our passage 
What he's saying here as he looks back on that is that there was always something shadowy about that. And what he means by that is that those sacrifices were never the true and final sacrifice to take away sin. Although they kind of sort of looked like it. They had, we might say, the same shape, the same general outline. They gave Israel a sense of what was coming. In other words, they gave Israel a sense of what their Savior would eventually come to do when he came to die on a cross. That's what our writer means by shadowy. Think about it. If somebody's coming toward me around the corner and there's a bright sun at his back, even before he rounds the corner, even before I see him, I see his shadow. And I might be able to learn a thing or two about what to expect when I see him just by looking at the shadow in advance that he casts on the ground because it kind of sort of looks like him, has the same shape, has the same outline, gives me a sense perhaps of the way he moves, his mannerisms, his gait. And yet at the same time, I also know that it's just the shadow. It's not the real thing. I'd be a fool to be satisfied with the shadow and not with meeting the real person who's coming to meet me. I'm not going to go up and try to shake the hand of the shadow, though that is a Paul Simon lyric. I saw a shadow shake a shadow's hand on Bleecker Street. But how unsatisfying would that be to try to Share fellowship with a shadow. No, if anything, that gives me a sense of what's coming when this person I'm waiting for comes around the corner and I see him. So the point is, the writer of Hebrews is saying something like that here about the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were never meant to be the true and final sacrifice to take away sin. And he says you can tell that from the simple fact that they had to be offered again and again, year after year. If they had been the true and final sacrifice to take away sin, well, that's just it. They would have been final. Once would have been enough. Israel's first day of atonement would have been the last. And there wouldn't have been any need to keep doing it. But that's not how it was. They did have to offer those sacrifices again and again, year after year. And so it had to be that they were shadowy. It had to be that those sacrifices were meant to teach a lesson in advance. They were teaching the lesson again and again that eventually a far greater sacrifice would have to be made. Far greater priest, far greater lamb. And so they were shadows of the good things to come, and the good things to come were Christ and his cross. So that's where our writer begins. That's the first of our two headings here, the sacrifices offered before Christ, verses 1 through 4. Now let's keep going to our second heading, which is the sacrifice, the one singular sacrifice offered by Christ. Picking up at verse 5. 
What we've been seeing up to this point is that those Old Testament sacrifices, they were designed all along to point forward to the good things to come. Well, now the good news is he came. Christ came. The Son of God came into the world. And when he came into the world, he had something to say as the Son of God. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Christ came into the world, he said. Now we need to stop and think about that. To get clear on that, when the writer of Hebrews says that, it's not necessarily the case that there was just this one moment in time, somewhere in there around Jesus' birth, that there was just one moment in time when God the Son made this exact speech to God the Father. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here, it doesn't require us to conclude that. But what we can conclude is that what we've got here is a description of the heart attitude of the Son toward the Father. This was how the Son felt toward his Father. This was how the Son embraced his mission from the moment his mission began to the moment it was finished. This was the heart attitude of the Son of God when he came into the world. And not only that... And now here we are standing on mysterious holy ground. Not only that, but in the fellowship of the Trinity, it must have been an attitude that was expressed, that was communicated in some way. It must have been shared in some mysterious way by the Son with the Father. What we have here is a revelation of the Son's heart and mind, and in some way he must have expressed it to his Father in the communion of the Godhead. As I say, this is holy ground. Here's the heart of the Son. Here's the fellowship of the divine Trinity. Here is what the Son felt and expressed to his Father within that fellowship. So what did he say? Verses 5 through 7 here in our passage, what did he have to say? Well... Earlier in our service this morning, I read for us Psalm 40. And maybe you picked up on this, or maybe you've got a footnote there in your Bible on the page you're looking at right now. The language in our passage, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, it's language that sounds an awful lot like a few verses, David's words in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, if you were to turn back in your Bible to that psalm, Psalm 40, and look at those verses, verses 6 through 8, what you'd find is language that's a little different from what we've got here in Hebrews 10, but I hasten to add, that's okay. That's okay, first of all, because the writer of Hebrews, he's not claiming here to be giving us a word-for-word quote from Psalm 40. And it's okay, second of all, because what the writer of Hebrews does in these verses, what he does write 
faithfully brings out the meaning of those Psalm 40 verses, even if he's not replicating them word for word. Because the basic meaning of those verses, back in Psalm 40 and here in Hebrews 10, the basic meaning is the same. Because what David was saying back in Psalm 40 was this, Lord, I understand what it is that you want from me as your servant, and Lord, you've enabled me, you've equipped me to be that servant. That was David's meaning back in Psalm 40. Lord, I know what it is that you want from me, and Lord, I know that you've equipped me to do it. Well, here in Hebrews 10, no wonder the writer looks back at that psalm, those verses, because he's making that kind of point about the Son of God coming into the world. Christ was saying, Father, I know what you want from me, and Father, I know that you've equipped me to do it. Christ was saying, in effect, Father, I understand that what you want from me is not to go to the temple in Jerusalem so that I can offer up more bulls and goats. That's not my mission. Because that would amount to a failure on my part. If that's all I did, that would amount to a failure on my part to offer up even to be the true and final sacrifice for sin. That would be just another shadow. People don't need another shadow. No one's finally going to be saved by yet another shadow. Christ is saying, no, I'm not going to go up to the temple in Jerusalem to offer up more bulls and goats. The implication is, I am going to go up to Jerusalem so that I can offer up myself. That's my mission. And Father, you have given me everything that I need to do that And among other things, what I needed was a true human nature to take to myself body and soul. So Christ is saying, it's the heart attitude of the Son. Father, you've played your part, now I've come to play mine. I've come to do your will. And Father, because you've equipped me, I can do it. I can follow through. That's what Christ was saying. That's the attitude that Christ was possessing from the moment his mission began to the moment his mission was fulfilled. And then notice, after pointing us back to Psalm 40 like that, our passage keeps going. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. Because the writer is saying, this is a very big deal. Because Christ came into the world to do the will of God, therefore, nothing would be the same again. There'd be no going back. There'd be no going back to that Old Testament system of annually offering up those bulls and goats. Look at verse 8. It says this, When he, that is Christ, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And then this, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Christ did away with that Old Testament system of sacrifices. He made that system null and void, and he did that in order to establish the will of God. What was the will of God for history from beginning even before time began? The cross. That was the will of God. Our being fully and finally forgiven thanks to the cross, that was the will of God. Nothing would be the same again. There'd be no going back. I said before that Christ didn't come into the world to offer up more bulls and goats. That wasn't his mission. Well, we can put it more strongly than that. After the work of Jesus, that's not going to be anybody's mission anymore. Offering up bulls and goats. That's a work, that's a mission that Christ himself in the sweep of history did away with. You've heard the expression, out with the old, in with the new. This is the most grand and glorious. Out with the old, in with the new in the whole of human history. Out with the old system of sacrificing bulls and goats, in with the new, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is an important issue when it comes to understanding our Bibles. The issue of how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament in our Bibles. It's an important question. It's the kind of question that you might be asked at any time, in any place, in any country, at any time of day. For example, our family went on a trip to England a number of years ago, flew all night, flew out of Dulles, landed the next morning at Heathrow, didn't sleep much on the plane. I think I can speak for the five of us. So we get to Heathrow and we're dragging. But you know, step one is to drag yourself to the customs entry line. So wearily, we snake our way through that line at the airport, and eventually we get to the point where they call us up, this weary, dragging American family. And I dutifully hand over our passports. And the fellow was kind enough, right? He's got questions that he asked to ask, and he says, why are, why are you here? Why do you seek entrance into our country? And I said, well, we're here on a family trip. It's a combination of family vacation and study. I'm here to study because I'd gone over to take one of my classes at London Theological Seminary. So I answered the question. We're here for vacation and study. That leads to a follow-up question. Oh, really? What are you here to study, Mr. Wolf? And I said, well, I'm here to study theology. I'm a pastor, and I'm taking a class at London Theological Seminary while we're here. And that led to this follow-up question. And I am not making this up. He said... Tell me, Mr. Wolf, 
Does the New Testament supersede the Old Testament in Christian theology? And there were about a hundred things that went through my mind at that moment, 99 of which I really should not have said when you're asking for entrance into another country. I mean, I was, I'm looking for softball questions, right? What's your favorite color? What country are you from again? Does the New Testament supersede the Old Testament in Christian theology? So I I took a deep breath and managed not to express my dismay. I I can only imagine how things might have gone if I'd answered differently. Mommy, where are they taking Daddy? (laughs) Kids, we're going to be traveling by ourselves for a while. But no, I took a deep breath, and what I managed to say was something relatively coherent and orthodox. I said, yes, it does supersede it in the sense that now that Christ has come and died on the cross, we're not bound by so many of those Old Testament rules and regulations the way Israel was at the time. But no, it doesn't supersede it in the sense that the Old Testament was some kind of mistake. It was not, because the Old Testament was designed all along to set the stage for Christ, to point forward to Christ, and now he's come. Or something like that. And then I hold my breath and wait to see if we're granted entrance into England. I think he liked the answer or at least he found it sufficiently coherent at that hour of day to let us in. And we had a wonderful trip, and I studied. I studied. You may never be asked that question in an airport the way I was, but I would say that's not a bad thought experiment to perform. What would you say? How would you answer that question? And isn't it the case that it's sometimes when we're weary and we're posed a tough question or we face a stiff challenge that what's brought out of us is whatever is in us deep down because it's what resides within deep down that comes out in a moment like that. Ask that question, what would you say? Hebrews 10 gives us the answer, or at least part of it. Those Old Testament sacrifices... They were serving the purpose, the good purpose, of giving Israel the general shape and outline of good things to come. Now that Christ has come and died and lives out with the old, in with the new. And not only that, but now we hold on to the Old Testament as the Word of God and we read it with new eyes. We read it with Christian eyes. There's the answer. So what does all of this mean for our lives today? How can we take these things and bring them to bear upon our lives? A one-word summary of our response today is gratitude. We ought to be grateful. And we ought to be grateful for so many things as we reflect upon these truths. First of all, we ought to be grateful for the Old Testament. As Christians... The the people of the age to come, those upon whom the ends of the ages has dawned, 
we ought to make the most of the Old Testament. It doesn't always make for the easiest reading, and we can admit that, but it's worth it. Reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is worth it. Reading about the temple and those sacrifices is valuable. Reading about the Day of Atonement is worth it. Why? Because it's all pointing forward to Christ. It's all setting the stage for Christ. And that makes it all the more satisfying when we remember that in the fullness of time, he stepped out on the stage. The stage was set, and it's not empty anymore. We ought to be grateful for the Old Testament. And then second of all, at the same time that we're grateful for the Old Testament, we also ought to be grateful that we don't live under that system of sacrifices that we find there. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, free at last from the bulls and goats, from the temple and the blood, from the day of atonement and all of those daily sacrifices in between. We are free. So grateful for the Old Testament, grateful for our freedom, and then last of all, best of all, we ought to be grateful for Christ himself. Grateful that he came into the world saying what he said, feeling what he felt, expressing it as he did in communion with the Father. For that matter, we ought to be grateful for the writer of Hebrews who wrote all of this down for us. We're standing on holy ground, as I said before, just reading this passage. We're given the privilege of listening in as God the Son communes with God the Father at the outset of his saving mission. As we read this passage, we're given the privilege of listening in on the greatest inaugural address that was ever delivered. That's what this is, in a sense. This is Christ's inaugural address. We're familiar with the basic concept of the inaugural address. Some powerful figure, as he assumes power, what does he do? Well, he makes a speech, declares his intentions, reveals his heart and mind, perhaps even expresses his gratitude that he's been equipped, that he's been endowed to serve in the way that he has to now. That's the idea. Well, there was never in all of human history an inaugural address quite like this one. There was never anyone in all of human history who did say, who could say what the Son of God said when he came into the world. And not only that, but imagine an inaugural address that's heard by nobody else but God. As I said, we're listening in as the Son communes with the Father from the outset of his saving mission, but it was hidden. It was secret, hidden within the secret fellowship of the Trinity. No human beings heard it. He came into a world that had not heard the speech. He came into a world that did not understand. As it says in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by men. As it says in John, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And yet here we are today, not despising him, but glorying in him, not rejecting him, but rejoicing in him. Here we are today listening in on what he had to say and knowing once again that it meant life. 
It meant eternal life. So, brothers and sisters, let us be grateful today for the Bible that God has given us, old and new, for the freedom that's ours in Christ. Let us be grateful today for Christ who came into the world saying what he said and who followed through to the end. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this book, these writings that you've placed in our hands, Old Testament and New. The way the old points forward, the way the new reveals and fulfills. We thank you for the freedom that's ours in Christ. We thank you for Christ, for his devotion to your will, for his perfect faithfulness to all that you'd given him to do with all that you'd provided him to do it. So we boast in Jesus this day. We are grateful and we say so in his name. Amen.